Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all you brave and hardy souls that ventured out on this day when the weather forecast is uh, not the best. So glad to have you here. Those of you that chose to stay home and watch the service online, we welcome you as well. Just glad to have you all here today as we praise the Lord. Um, Our call to worship today is going to be a uh, passage from the book of Psalms. We're going to read it responsibly, and then we'll stand and sing. In fact, why don't we stand now if you're able. Stand now, and we'll sing a song that will, will get us woken up. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. So let's read responsibly. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Let's sing together. Welcome this morning. We're glad you're here with us at Free Lakes Evangelical Free Church. If you're visiting or new, don't know who I am, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you here this morning, whether you're joining us here in person or online. It's good to have you with us. If you are new, if there's anything else you just want to pass along to us in the church office, there are connect cards in the seat in front of you that we would love to kind of hear a little bit about. You could drop, fill that out and drop it off in the giving basket on your way out. Uh, we want to extend our condolences to Joyce Anderson. Her husband Keith passed away the past week. We're going to express our condolences to her. Um, and so we, yeah, but yeah, we're glad that you're with us here this morning as we continue to worship together. 
As we continue our worship, I'm going to try something a little different. I'm going to read the words to a hymn. You know, sometimes for familiar hymns, which have very rich and deep words, sometimes the music gets in the way and it just kind of doesn't connect to our souls. And so I'm going to read the words to a very familiar hymn and hopefully it will resonate with your soul this morning. Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All, now mysterious, shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on, when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, fear, and grief are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. I hope that spoke to you. We're also going to sing a a new song, a new hymn. It's actually a modern hymn. It too has very rich words. The music hopefully won't get in the way. If you don't know it, just, just enjoy the words, but you'll pick it up pretty fast. And so join us as we sing together this uh, new hymn. And again, if you're able and and wish to stand, you can uh, worship in that way.
done with February, but we are, and uh, outside, it, yeah, kind of looks like the end of February, but it kind of doesn't, so, but it is also weird to think about that it's been almost a year since we actually passed a plate down our rows for offering, and um, so thank you for all of you who have been faithfully giving. If you um, continue to want to give, there are uh, baskets or plates out at the back on the foyer. You can also give online at our website. Um, and we also have some other, other ways, text to give, or you can um, mail stuff to our office, of course. But would you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together, Lord, to, to worship you. You are holy. And sometimes we, ha we struggle with that idea of holiness because we live in a world that, that is not holy. But you are holy, and we thank you for that. We thank you that in your holiness you love us, that you sent your Son to die for us and rose again on the third day. And that even as we experience this world with its ups and downs and uncertainty and hardships and death that we have you to rely on. We pray for Joyce Anderson today. We thank you that, that she has the assurance that she will see Keith again. Not, not on earth, not in the brokenness of this world, but in the perfection of heaven. We thank you for your sovereignty as we look out at an uncertain world and your goodness to us in it.
We ask your blessing on our time together as we continue to worship you as uh, Pastor Tim brings your word. We ask that you would just infuse this place with your presence. Give us your strength and, and your grace and your holiness as we continue to worship you. And we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together as your people in this place. We love you, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll continue worshiping. We'll sing one more song, this one, Sovereign Over Us. Um, If you feel led to stand at any point, you're welcome to worship the Lord as you feel led. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in a morning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. Your sanctity us when beyond our understanding you're teaching us to trust your plans are still to prosper Fire and the fire. 
Father, we are so thankful that you are indeed sovereign, that even the struggles, even the trials of this life, you work for good and for your glory. Would that truth resonate in our hearts this morning? Would we trust your sovereign goodness to us as we walk through the challenges of life? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be in Luke chapter 3 this morning, starting in verse 21. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. If you don't have one with you, there's some in the seats in front if you want to grab one of those. So, like the rise of the internet has like, had a lot of effects, right? Some of them good, some of them clearly not as good. But one of the kind of small tangential side effects of the internet has been this big rise in people's interest in studying their family history or their genealogies. Like, I mean, there's always been some interest in those sorts of topics, right? The daughters of the American Revolution were founded in 1889. I guess it's an organization for women who could prove that they had some family connection to people who were involved in the Revolutionary War. So there's an interest in genealogy there. Other similar groups have similar interest in genealogy. But the rise of the Internet has made this research into family history much easier. No longer do you have to go digging through dusty old archives to find evidence of your family history. Now we have websites like Ancestry.com and MyHeritage, which collect all that information and they digitalize it and they offer it to subscribers for a fee. And so these websites have turned genealogy into a multi-billion dollar industry. According to Time magazine, Genealogy is the second most popular hobby in the United States behind only gardening. And like this rise in popularity of genealogy has led to a number of television shows. The BBC in the UK has Who Do You Think You Are? PBS here in the United States has Finding Your Roots. And both of these shows trace the family trees of various celebrities. They go back into the history and they kind of find out where they came from. But the popularity of genealogy raises kind of a, a hard question, which is, like, what happens when you don't like what you find in your research? Like, what do you do when you don't like what your family tree reveals? Like, one of the shows I just mentioned, PBS of Finding Your Roots, took a lot of heat a few years back and was ultimately put on hiatus because... It was revealed that the actor Ben Affleck demanded the show suppress the fact that some of his ancestors were slave owners, and they obliged. He persuaded the show to hide that fact. But like, why did Affleck care? Like, why did he want so badly to suppress that information? Like, what does it matter if someone in your family tree is a bad person? Or conversely, like. Why do we care if there's somebody good or great in our family history? Why are the daughters of the American Revolution so proud of the fact that they are descended from people who fought in the Revolutionary War? Why do we care about family history at all? We care because where we came from, or who we came from, 
it influences who we are. Now, it's not 100% determinative. Like, having good ancestors doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a good person. Just as having evil ancestors doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a bad person. But family history does have an impact on who we are. There's a reason we have expressions like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And as we come to this passage this morning, we get a little peek into Jesus' family tree. Or more precisely, Jesus' family trees. Jesus is the only person to ever have really two distinct family trees. But both of those trees reveal the same truth, which is that Jesus is the Son of God. What we see through the two family trees of Jesus is that Jesus is the Son of God in two distinct ways. And really, one of those family trees is less of a tree and more of a stick. Like it's God the Father, Jesus the Son. Full stop, period. That's the family tree. Like he's the only he's the only begotten Son. He's uniquely the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. On the other hand, Jesus has this extensive family tree that Luke traces through his earthly family all the way back to Adam. And Luke also calls Adam the son of God. And so Jesus is descended through Adam from the first son of God. And so in that sense, Jesus is the son of God representatively. like He represents us as God's son. So as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to look at these two distinct ways that Luke portrayed Jesus as the Son of God. So first, we'll look at how Jesus is the Son of God uniquely, which Luke showed primarily through the baptism of Jesus. And then we'll look at how Jesus is the Son of God representatively, which, as we said, Luke demonstrates by looking at Jesus' earthly genealogy. So let's start by looking at Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. In Luke 3, verses 21 and 22, we read, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, with you, I am well pleased. And as we said, like what we see in this account, what we see in this little passage, is that Jesus is the Son of God uniquely. When I went to Israel about a year ago now, like, we went to two different sites that people claimed was the place where John did his baptizing. And the first of those sites was the place where most tour guides will tell you that John like, definitely did his baptizing. I mean, the fact is, we don't really know for sure, right? but tour guides don't want you to know that, so they're very confident that this is the place. And because they're so confident in the place, like this big, almost industrial complex that grew up around it, right? There's like these big things going into the water for people to be baptized. There's gift shops everywhere. And so like up and down the river... There's just people from all different tour groups being baptized. People want to be baptized in the spot where Jesus was baptized. And like, 
I don't want to minimize like, what those people experienced internally. Like, I'm sure it was a personally moving experience for them. But from an outside perspective, you just see person after person after person being baptized in the river, and like nothing earth-shattering happens. Like nothing amazing is happening. Like baptism is kind of definitionally a more internal experience. And the same thing was true in Jesus' day. John was baptizing in the Jordan. So John had preached powerfully and he had drawn substantial crowds of followers. And now many of those who were drawn to his preaching came and wanted to be baptized. And as significant as that baptism surely would for the people being baptized, from the outside, it didn't look extraordinary. They were Lowered in the water, they raised up, nothing extraordinary happened. But then, in this long line of people who were coming to John to be baptized, Jesus came. And his baptism was altogether unique, altogether different. When he was baptized, Luke tells us the heaven is opened. The Holy Spirit descends in bodily form. A voice comes from heaven. This is something altogether different, altogether unique. It's clear to everyone who's there that something special, something unique is happening. Whenever the Bible talks about the heavens being opened, it's a sign that like, we're getting a revelation from God. God is speaking. God is revealing something about who He is. And that's what we see here. God the Son is being baptized. The heavens open. God the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And God the Father speaks and He says, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And that statement, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It brings to mind two important Old Testament verses about the coming Messiah. Psalm 2.7 says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I become your father. And Isaiah 42.1 says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Like the coming Messiah was described in various ways in the Old Testament, sometimes as a son, sometimes as a servant. Right? And this statement here declares that Jesus is both. Like he is the son and he is Isaiah's prophesied servant. So it's interesting, when Matthew records this same passage, he records God as saying, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Whereas in Luke, it's you are my son, right? We're hearing it from Jesus' perspective instead of the crowd's perspective. And Grant Osborne, in his commentary, that he believes that the crowd really heard, this is my son. And Jesus really heard, you are my son. They each heard it from their own perspective. But in any case, it seems clear. This is a public event. Everyone there heard the voice of God speak. Everyone saw the heavens open. Everyone saw the dove descend. This was a unique 
situation. No one else who was being baptized got this experience, got this kind of treatment. In fact, like, being called the Son of God was unheard of for an individual. In the Old Testament, there's a couple instances of Israel as a whole being called the Son of God. But nowhere is an individual person called the Son of God except for the prophesied one. So Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. There is no one else like Him. He is the only begotten Son. And at that only Son, the unique Son of God, the Father says two things about Him. One, that He is loved. And two, that He is approved. And like, if you're a parent, you know that loving and approving of your child don't always go hand in hand. Or like, you can love a child and not approve what they're doing. But in this case, both things are true. Jesus is loved, but his actions also please the Father. Next week, we'll look at the story of Jesus being tempted by Satan. And what we'll see is that Jesus is tempted in various ways, and yet he resists all those temptations. In fact, Jesus will never do anything that will displease the Father. He lived a sinless life. The Father was pleased with him up to this point in his life, and he will continue to be pleased with him all throughout his life. Like the ultimate expression of the Father's approval will come when the Father raises him from the dead after his crucifixion. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, death couldn't hold him, and God raised him from the dead. But that leads to an important question. We talked about John's baptism last week. We said the baptism of repentance, right? a baptism of turning away from sin and turning back to God. But if Jesus never sinned, so why is he being baptized with the baptism of repentance? What does he have to repent of? And to answer that question, we need to look at the next section of our passage. So just like hang on to that question for a second. We'll come back to it in a minute. But first, I'm going to look a little bit at Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 28. So if you have your Bible in front of you, you can look at that passage. And it's a long genealogy. It's like 77 names of so-and-so is the son of, so-and-so is the son of, so-and-so is the son of. It's 77 names long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. By and large, like it's just a list of meaningless names. When I say meaningless, like it's not because they're just obscure. It's like they're, most of these names are mentioned nowhere else. Like We know nothing about them. So it's just this long list of <clears throat> names. And so I'll come back to a few key parts of the genealogy, but I'm not going to take time right now to read through the whole thing. But one thing that is noticeable about this genealogy, especially when you compare it to the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, is that Luke's genealogy is different than Matthew's in a couple important ways. So one, probably the first and most obvious way that Luke's genealogy is different than Matthew's, is that like a lot of the names are just different. 
There are 38 names in Luke genealogy that aren't in Matthew's. Now, part of the reason it's structural, like Luke goes all the way back to Adam, where Matthew stops with Abraham. But it's not like they just disagree on the long-lost relatives. Like Matthew and Luke don't even agree on who Jesus' grandpa is. Like According to Matthew, Jesus was the son of Joseph, who was the son of Jacob. But according to Luke, Jesus was the son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. Like, that raises the question, like, how can these two genealogies be so different? Like, how can you get even Jesus' grandpa different? Like, the other difference in the genealogies like, has to do with the location in the book. Like, Matthew's genealogy occurs right at the beginning of his gospel. Like, right before the account of Jesus' birth. And, like, to me, that seems like the logical place to put a genealogy. Like, but Luke puts his genealogy like, in this weird, kind of seemingly awkward spot. Like, between the baptism and being tested in the wilderness, like, not by his birth. Like, why would Luke put the genealogy here? And so if we go back to the question about, like, why would Jesus baptize? We have kind of three pretty big questions that are, are important to answer. Like, one, why was Jesus baptized when he was sinless? Two, why is Luke's genealogy different than Matthew's? And three, why does Luke place his genealogy in the kind of weird spot in the middle of his book, not really right by the birth of Jesus? Now those are like they're tough questions in a lot of ways, but I think all three of them boil down to the same ultimate answer, which is that Luke is using his genealogy and the stories of baptism to point us to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God representatively. Jesus identifies with us and he represents us before God. So like, let's do that. Let's take a look, closer look at each of these three questions. So the first question, like, why was the sinless Jesus baptized with a baptism of repentance? I think the answer to that is that like, a key part of Jesus' mission, like his purpose in coming to earth, were to identify with us. Or as Isaiah says, to be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus submitting himself to a sinner's baptism foreshadows how he will submit himself to a sinner's death on the cross. Philip Graham Reichen puts it this way. If we are amazed to see him baptized, we are all the more amazed to see him crucified. The choice that Jesus made at his baptism was the choice that ultimately led him to the cross. He was willing to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners could be saved. And so he was baptized. Like Luke wants us to understand that Jesus, as the Son of God, represents all people who know God as their Father. He takes our place. That's why he is baptized, to identify with us. That leads us to our second question, which is, why is Luke's genealogy so different from Matthew's? Like, why don't the names agree? And, like, frankly, there's a lot of different theories about this. 
Right? There's, like, there's some people who think that Luke is ultimately tracing Mary's lineage because Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. Right? Some people suggest that there's like a Leviterate marriage going on that when Heli, like Jesus' grandpa, according to Luke, died childless and Jacob who had the same mother but different father, married. I think it's confusing. People are kind of trying to jump through hoops to explain why these genealogies are different. And the fact of the matter is, like, we don't really know for sure. We can be confident that, like, Luke, the careful historian, researching somebody from the line of David, or they kept careful family records, they didn't get it wrong. Like, there's some reason why the genealogy disagree. Like Matthew and Luke didn't mess up. But there's some reason that they both are there. They're both right, but they're both different. And here's the reason I find most compelling. Right? It's not set in stone. I'm not 100% convinced of this, but it's the most compelling reason I could find. J. Gresham Machen, among others, argues that like Matthew and his genealogy gives us like the legal descendants of David. The men who would have legally been the heir of David's throne if that throne had continued through the exile. Well, Luke gives us the descendants of David in the particular line of his family, which finally Joseph, the husband of Mary, belonged. So Matthew was giving us the kind of royal, kingly line like who the rightful heir to the throne of Israel is, well, Luke gives us Jesus' kind of biological line. Like, I won't get into all the details here. Now, if you want to talk more about it at cross-training after the service, we can certainly do that. But, like, basically, like, Luke, Matthew gives us the, the kingly line. Well, Luke gives us it's the earthly biological line. And one kind of key piece of evidence for that is found and how the two Gospels trace the genealogy right after David. For Matthew, the line of David, the line from David to Jesus, goes through David's son, Solomon, as the next king in line. Well, for Luke, the line from David to Jesus goes through David's son, Nathan. And because Matthew, throughout his Gospel, like his focus is on presenting Jesus as the king, right? The messianic king. Like that's his big push. Whereas Luke, as we've talked about, he's focused on portraying Jesus as a representative for all humanity. And so he traces Jesus' kind of common family line rather than the, the royal line. Which leads to the final question. Why did Luke place the genealogy where he did? I think it has to do with the focus on right, the two ways that Jesus is the Son of God. Like right after the Father says of Jesus, this is my Son at the baptism, Luke jumps into this genealogy with, which ends with the Son of Adam, the Son of God. Right? So Luke has in mind these two ways that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique Son and the representative coming from Adam. Sorry. So Luke ties these two sections together. 
with this idea of the Son of God. But here's the thing about, about Adam as God's son. Adam as the first of God's creation. As the first man, he represents all of us when he sins. We're all counted guilty of sin through Adam. In Romans, Paul writes, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Consequently, one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. Because Adam sinned, we're all sinners, not just by choice, not just because we choose to sin, but also because of our nature. Sin is a part of our very nature because of the sin of Adam, our first father. And that's bad news because the Bible is clear that God is going to judge sin. That the wages of sin is death and eternity in hell. But there is good news. So that Paul goes on to say that Adam was only a type or a pattern of the one who was to come. We talked about this when we talked about the fall in our Genesis series. That even though Adam failed, even though Adam sinned, God would one day send a second Adam who would crush the head of the serpent. And by tracing Jesus' genealogy back all the way through Adam, Luke is trying to help us see that Jesus is that second Adam. As Paul continues in Romans, he says, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Because Jesus is the Son of God representatively, because he represents all those who put their faith and trust in him, we are made righteous if we place our faith in him. That one day when we stand before God to be judged, which we all will, God will judge us not on the basis of Adam's sin, not on the basis of our own sins, which there are many, but on the basis of the righteous life of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians we read, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By going to the cross, Jesus represents us. He takes our place. He takes all our sin on himself and gives us his righteousness instead. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. We exchange our sinful life for the sinless life of Jesus. And because of that, we have eternal life. So if like, this idea is new to you, if you've not like, heard of like, receiving the righteousness of Jesus by believing in Him, if you've not placed your trust in Him to receive His righteousness, I would invite you and encourage you to do that, to place your faith and your trust in Him. 
If you have questions about what that means, you want to talk more about that, then I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you. But even if this idea isn't new to you, even if you've believed in Jesus and the forgiveness of sin for a long time, I at least find it easy to forget and to take for granted all the good that Jesus' taking my place means for me. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and to lose sight of all the blessings of knowing Jesus. So the rest of our time this morning, I just want to reflect on a couple of those blessings, a couple of blessings of knowing Jesus, of having him be our representative, our replacement. And the first of those that I want to focus on is like the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove. And throughout Luke's Gospel, we see Luke doing many things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Next week when he's tempted by Satan, he resists that temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit. When he preaches, Luke tells us he preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit. He worships in the power of the Holy Spirit. He performs miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, Hebrews 9 tells us that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus offered himself on the cross. As great as Jesus was, he did not do those things alone. He didn't do them by his own intrinsic power. He did them depending on the power of the Holy Spirit. The glorious truth of this passage is that that same Holy Spirit has now descended on all of us who have trusted in Jesus. Last week we talked about how Jesus, John said that Jesus would offer a baptism that was greater than John's. Because Jesus' baptism would be a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And everyone who believes in Jesus has received that baptism. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, like you have that Holy Spirit at work in you. The same Holy Spirit who empowered Jesus to resist temptation, to preach, to worship, to offer himself on the cross, that same power is at work in you. He desires to help you and to strengthen you, to empower you, commune with you? And so here's the question. How are you doing at relying on the Holy Spirit at work in you? Do you seek to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit as you go about your day-to-day life? Or do you try to do things in your own power? And like, I don't mean that as a chastisement. Like, I'm not trying to say, like, if you're not relying on the Holy Spirit, then shame on you. Like, but rather, like, I say that as an, as an invitation. Like, if you've been trying to do things in your own power, like, then no doubt you're feeling defeated and worn out and tired. We can't do this life in our own power. Like, if Jesus needed to live his life in the power of the Spirit, how much more do we need to live our lives in the power of of the Holy Spirit. So I, I just invite you, like as you face 
challenges, as you face struggles, as you face hardships, as you battle sin, like rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Talk to Him. Tell Him your struggles, your needs. Ask Him for help. The Holy Spirit at work in us is one of the great blessings of knowing and believing Jesus. So I'd invite you to just take advantage of it, to rely on that power. The second great blessing of knowing Jesus that we see in this passage is our standing before the Father. We touched on this earlier, but God said to Jesus that he is loved and approved. Because Jesus is our representative, because he takes our place on the cross, he gives us his righteousness. And therefore, the same thing is true of us. If you trust in Jesus, then the Father says of you, you are my child, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If you trust in Jesus, then the Father loves you. And because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, he is well pleased with you. All your sins have been paid for. They are dealt with and removed from you. You don't need to clean yourself up a little bit before you come to your Father. There is no more cleaning up to do. Jesus did it all. There is nothing you can do to to make God love you more than he does right now. And so again, I wonder, like, is that truth deep in our hearts? Like, do we really believe that on a day-to-day basis? Do you really believe that you are loved and approved by the Father? Or do you feel like there's something more you have to do to earn God's favor? Like, we are naturally like, legalistic people, especially in this culture of what have you done for me lately? And like, earn your keep. Like, we are naturalistic or uh, legalistic people. Like, I at least find myself like falling into the trap of feeling like I need to do something, some good deed or something to make God pleased with me to earn God's favor before I come to Him, my request and my desire for fellowship and relationship with Him. And so I need to constantly remind myself that because of the work of Jesus, I am already loved. I'm already approved. Nothing I can do is going to change that status. My sins are dealt with. I am clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's my hope for all of us as we leave here this morning that we would all feel that love and that approval from the Father. If you know Jesus, if you've trusted in Jesus, then that you would leave here feeling loved and approved. Yes, we will still fail. We will still sin. And yes, we should strive to battle sin and to live our lives in a way that honors God. But all of that flows out of the fact, first and foremost, that we are loved and approved by the Father because of the work of the Son, the unique Son, the representative Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Father, we are so thankful, so grateful that we can stand before you in prayer, in worship, in relationship, but because of the work of Jesus, because of the work of your Son, that we are forgiven, that we are clothed in his righteousness, and because of that we are loved and approved by you. Father, we are thankful that you sent your Spirit, that you do not leave us, figure out this life on our own, but you sent us your Spirit. Through our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit at work in us. God, that you are at work in us, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God, please help us to know more and more what that means, how to live in communion with the Holy Spirit in us, how to rely on the Holy Spirit for our needs day to day. We confess that so often we try to do things in our own power. We try to clean ourselves up before we come to you. God, we confess that we try and fail. We so thankful for the way you loved us and sending Jesus for us. How about to live our lives in light of the truth that we are your children because you sent your one and only Son to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve to die. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way of benediction this morning, I want to leave you with some of the most well-known verses in the Bible, but words that speak to the power and the significance of the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. You know these words, but hear them one more time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So go knowing that you are not condemned, but that you are loved and approved by the Father. You are dismissed.